afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. On this week's show, we'll be talking about recent developments in science and technology. Also joining us is Professor Duncan Watts to talk about six degrees of separation. In addition, you can find out what a ribozyme is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. To Berkeley Rocks, I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee, and I'm Gordon Campbell. Well, it's good to be back, everybody. And how's everyone doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I love the weather here. <laughs> it's always uh, it's amazing the weather. I mean, balmy, <laughs> balmy. <laughs> so I got a couple of stories uh, from the net, actually, stuff you can do at home. Okay, I, I can do a lot of things at home. Most of the things I don't want to talk about, though. <laughs> but can you do it on Google? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, sometimes I Google when I'm doing that, but <laughs> you know what happens if you type "miserable failure" into Google? Uh, it comes up with my name. Actually, George Bush. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's kind of amazing. It turns out number two is Hillary Clinton, though. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's that's really interesting. So, is it is it a website dedicated to, to George Bush or? No, it turns out there are a lot of people out there who uh, who link the word miserable failure to uh, the White House, and ah. so because of the ranking system, right? Um, Google thinks that it points to uh, George Bush. Oh, okay. <laughs> Seems fairly accurate. Yes, uh, thus far. <laughs> well, you know, I remember the, they had weapons of mass destruction uh, all linked to uh, this one guy's website, and right. he basically copied a uh, you know one of those error messages on Internet Explorer, and basically says weapons of mass destruction could not be found. Oh, that yeah. error code 404, right? Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> <laughs> so always fun things. Yeah, and the other cool trick you do if uh, if you're buying music off the net is you can buy the Sound of Silence. Oh, is that right? Right. So if you go to the iTunes, the uh, the Apple Music Store. Uh-huh. And you type in the silence, there's actually more than 10 tracks of pure silence. <laughs> so, so not the actual sound of silence, but... Recorded silence. Do you get a discount? Yeah, and you know what? It's it like those paintings that are white. <laughs> and it doesn't have the original 4 minute and 33 seconds by John Cage. <laughs> that, was, that was the, I guess, definitive version, but uh, yeah. everyone's always trying to copy it. <laughs> yeah, it's deafening, huh? <laughs> All right, well, I guess if you're in, in for wasting your money or something, <laughs> you can go ahead. Stuff you can do on the net. Right. All right. Have either of you guys ever had an intestinal infection? Uh, not yet. I don't really want to find out. I'm, I'm having one right now. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm sorry, Charles. <laughs> I'm actually quite enjoying it. <laughs> the most activity I've had down there in a while. <laughs> well, it actually may not be as bad as you think. Oh, is that right? Mm. Apparently, bacteria are not only beneficial to your gut, but they're important for intestinal development in vertebrates. Oh. So they, they help your intestine, uh, I guess, while you're fetus or something, or what? After you're born, at least. 
place. Okay. Oh, okay. Is it to produce like that vitamin K or whatnot? Well, they're not exactly sure what the bacteria are doing, but previous studies were done in mice, and now a recent study was done by John Rowles and colleagues in Jeffrey Gordon's lab at Washington University. So what they did was the researchers raised zebrafish bereft of all bacteria and compared them to zebrafish raised normally. And similar to what they found in mice, these results showed that the immune system failed to fully develop, and in addition, the fish had diminished abilities to process nutrients and to regenerate their intestinal linings. Oh, so I guess I don't have to add any more antibacterial soap to my soup anymore, huh? (laughs) Maybe not. Oh, well, that's that's a shame. So these poor fish don't have an intestine. That's right. Yeah, or at least much of <laughs> well, one. Well, not a very functional one yeah. at any rate. I have a greater respect for uh, bacteria now. <laughs> they are our friends. Yeah. yeah, they're better than you think. And also surprisingly, the team found 66 genes analogous to the ones regulated by beneficial bacteria in the mouse intestine when they looked in the zebrafish, hmm. suggesting that some bacterial host interactions derive from an ancient ancestor of both mice and fish. Mm, not mice and men? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably men, too. To be determined. Yeah. I don't know who would want to do the experiment on their children, but <laughs> okay. we'll find out some other way. Well, I'm going to take my bacteria out for a party, then. <laughs> we'll celebrate. So if anyone wants to know more about this? If you want to read more about intestinal infecting bacteria, <laughs> you can do so in this week's issue of PNAS. Wow, oh. bacteria and PNAS. <laughs> I've all, you know, and colons, too. That's That's got to be popular in San Francisco. <laughs> PNAS, our favorite journal. Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. All right, well, always a good story to follow up anything having to do with colorectal <laughs> actions. Is Help ice, my appetite. That's right, is ice cream. Everyone loves mm, ice cream, right? Ice cream. And ice cream, of course, is uh, always very appealing to, I think, colons as, as well. But uh, it turns out that a group of researchers have actually found the genes responsible for uh, helping to create ice cream. You're kidding. Yeah. You, wow. need, you need some sort of enzyme or something to create ice cream? Yes, well, it turns out you do. So uh, guar gum and uh, locust bean gum are uh, polysaccharides that are basically added to ice cream shampoo as thickeners, right? Uh-huh. And it turns out that these types of uh, 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 basically polysaccharides are produced by plants to uh, store energy and uh, and do other things in the, in the cell as well. Right. So a research team led by Conal Paul S. Duga of the Pioneer Hybrid International uh, Laboratories in Johnson, Iowa, have uh, found the gene that completes the biochemical pathway used to se- uh, synthesize galactomannins, which are, I guess, the class of polysaccharides these are. Um, so it's uh, certainly, I guess, useful now that they know that they could probably produce uh, a lot more of these things uh, uh, sort of synthetically. Oh, than. okay. Thickeners for food additives. Yeah. Huh? Wow, there really is a gene for everything, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought that, you know, genetics one day, that might tell us something. Thank God for James Watson, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wonder if what happens if you uh, blend that into the human genome, though. <laughs> Does that mean we can make mutant ice cream? Oh, <laughs> that'd be quite fun. How about uh, glowing red? Well, we already have that. <laughs> okay, so um, and if anyone wants to learn more about this, uh, it was actually published in a recent edition of Science. So, guys, are you into silicon? 
Ooh. Totally. <laughs> totally, huh? I like the mineral oil versions, though, but ah. silicon's okay. <laughs> silicon's okay? It's in our chips. It's in uh, a lot of other nice things, I guess. Yes, round things. And by that, I mean bowls. <laughs> <laughs> well, up to now, it's not been a very uh, clean thing to do, because what they do is they convert silicon dioxide, quartz or sand, into silicon, and that usually produces a lot of carbon dioxide, which is not good for the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. They found a new way, an electrolytic way, in which they can split the uh, silicon from the oxygen. So you get pure silicon and pure oxygen from your product. And oh. no carbon dioxide. Wow, that's pretty good. And then you can get an oxygen high. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of neat. How are they uh, going to implement this? So this is research that was carried out by George Chen at the University of Nottingham in England. What they did was they took the quartz up to 1,700 degrees centigrade and used uh, calcium chloride as, as some uh, an electrolyte. And from this process, the oxygen is released. Okay, so it's basically a sort of a catalytic process. Right, but it just hasn't been optimized until now. Oh, okay. Well, that's useful. So this will help us make better computer chips or it can help us make chips without spewing so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere since we need so much of the stuff anyways right and if anyone wants to know more they can go to the recent issue of Ankyvant Kemi the international edition oh pick that one up at your local bookstore yeah alright and that's all for this week's look at current development in the world of science coming up Professor Duncan Watts will join us to talk about six degrees thank you Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. One of the jokes that Professor David Gustine of Caltech likes to tell a student goes something like this. It's well known that the fundamental components of an atom are the electron, proton, and the neutron. Similarly, scientists have also discovered a fundamental unit in society, the person. Since this realization, sociologists have been trying to understand and perhaps even enhance social networks and interactions. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks is Dr. Duncan Watts, professor of sociology at Columbia University, to talk about his research on using mathematical models to study social networks and his new book, Six Degrees. Uh, Professor Watts, thank you for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. Thanks, thanks. Many of us are probably aware of the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but not the science behind it. Uh, To begin with, perhaps you could tell us what exactly the Six Degrees phenomenon is. Well, uh, that's generally true. I mean, uh, when I first uh, heard about the idea that uh, everybody can be connected to everybody else through only six handshakes, uh, as some people say, I assumed, uh, like many people do, that it's just an urban myth. But I got interested in it, and now, several years later, it's clear that that actually this is an idea that's been around for a long, long time, uh, almost uh, 100 years as far as we can tell, and has been uh, a subject of academic inquiry for uh, at least 50 years and lots of different people from sociologists and political scientists and and mathematicians uh, have thought about it. So is there a special significance to the value of six or is this just an average? 
You know, the origin of the number six is a little unclear. The short answer is no, it doesn't matter that it's six. The real point is that it's a small number. So it's not a thousand, uh, it's not a million, it's, you know, six. Maybe it's six, maybe it's eight, maybe it's five. The people who think about these problems, it's not really that important as long as it's a small number. The number six, it's not clear where that comes from, but there was an experiment done in the 1960s by the social psychologist Stanley Milgram, and this is sort of the experiment that it wasn't the first time that people had thought about the small world problem as it's as it's called in sociology mm-hmm. uh, but it was the first experiment that anyone had ever done and it, it certainly captured a lot of people's attention and Milgram the way he he tested this idea is he picked a single person who's a, who was a stockbroker in Boston and he picked about 300 other people from Boston and also from Omaha Nebraska whose job it was to try and reach this target person the stockbroker and they were given given a set of instructions that they had to reach this person and they were given a lot of information about him but they were told they could only send the message to someone who they knew personally so if they didn't know the stockbroker personally which of course was very unlikely they had to pick someone else who they did know personally who they thought was closer to the stockbroker than they were and then this person got the same set of instructions and they passed it on to another person and so on and so he he created these message chains that converged uh, from around the country uh, onto the stockbroker and about 60 odd or of these chains, about 20% of them actually made it. Of those, the average length was about six. And that's where I think, at least, the phrase six degrees of separation came from, was from this first ever experiment. But oddly enough, the person who made the phrase six degrees of separation famous was not a scientist at all. It was a playwright, uh, (laughs) John Guare, who wrote the play uh, Six Degrees of Separation in 1990, and then later on it was made into a a movie. It's interesting because in this topic, there is a continual interplay between the science and the popular culture, and each one has inspired the other in its turn. So it's kind of a fun topic. Right, very fascinating. You were originally trained as a physicist, and you observed that some others have that the similarities between physical models and sociological models perhaps you can talk about some of them yeah, well, I, I did get into sociology in a, in a sort of roundabout way. I started off studying physics and, and, and got very interested in college in what people call chaos theory, but the more technical name for this is, is nonlinear dynamics. And then I went on to graduate school at Cornell to study nonlinear dynamics in the, in the engineering school there. And in the process of doing that, got interested in the, in the behavior of very large connected systems. The very general idea is you take a bunch of objects, things, entities, and maybe the entities are people, and maybe they're computers in, a, in the internet, or airplanes in an air traffic control system, or, or biological organisms uh, in an ecosystem, and you let them interact with each other. This is what things do in the world, they interact. But the result of those interactions is that the system as a whole can do some really unexpected things. So we have a very good understanding, for example, of how airplanes fly and we can predict relatively accurately how long it's going to take for an airplane to fly from point A to point B. But when you put a lot of airplanes up in the sky together and you make them all go through airports, then a little disturbance at one place can result in congestion that spreads all over the country. The so-called butterfly effect. That's right. The butterfly effect is sort of an example of uh, you know all uh, a, a whole set of phenomena that occur in these sort of big, complex, nonlinear systems, where a small disturbance at one place can propagate uh, in sort of often unpredictable ways 
and manifest itself as a very different kind of, of effect somewhere else at some later point in time. And so the transition stage that I went through when I was doing this, you know, the mathematics of, of these sort of big coupled systems is that I got very interested in the, the connectivity. My reasoning was if it's true that these interactions between the parts are what really is making them different, this sort of expression, the whole is different from the sum of its parts. If it's true that what is making the whole different from the sum of its parts is the interactions between them, then that's the thing that we really need to understand. And one way to think about that is in terms of a network. The network is the whole pattern of interactions or links or relationships that connect up the different bits and pieces. And so once you start to think about the problem from that perspective, then you start to see networks all over the place. You see them in biology, you see them in, in engineering, in power grids, in, in airline systems, and most of all, you see them in social systems. You see them in economies and markets and firms, and you see them in communities and organizations and friendship networks. And, and this is something that we are starting to see more and more of in the, the world of the Internet, that everybody, scientists and non-scientists alike, have started to think more about connectivity between people. And we have these uh, these very popular companies now like Friendster and, and Spoke Software. That, Orchid. Uh, Orchid is another one, yes, that explicitly show you the links between many, many people. And so I started to get interested in all these problems uh, and, and decided that I, I was less interested in, in studying the mathematics of biological systems or engineering systems and more interested in studying the mathematics of social systems. It took a few years. But uh, as a result of that transition in, in my own head, I, I became a, a mathematical sociologist. I'm just curious here. Uh, in these models, do you treat the people as discrete units or part of a continuum or a field? That's an interesting question because the answer is yes and, and no. The way that the models get written down is in terms of discrete entities. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you start off by buying into the typical assumption that people are sort of self-contained units and they have rules of behavior and they respond to inputs and signals and influences that come from their environment and part of that environment is the other people that they're connected to, right? your friends or your business partners or whoever it is that you pay attention to uh, or you use for, for resources or support. And so you define a population of individuals and you define the rules that they follow and then you define this network of interactions and there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, but then the interesting thing is that uh, once everybody starts interacting in this way, the behavior that they exhibit subsequently is very hard to trace back to these original characteristics. In other words, if somebody does something, if someone buys a product or if someone uh, adopts a new fashion, the standard view from, from economics, say, is that you can infer that, that they must have wanted that product that they must have that they must like that particular mm -hmm. fashion that this is this is a an external expression of some internal preference this is what economists call revealed preferences once you start to think about networks uh, and networks of influences it becomes very difficult to make that association because maybe you wanted this thing before you bought it or maybe you just had no idea what you wanted and your friend told you that this was a good thing to get and so you got it right so we know we have lots of examples of this you're making decisions about which cell phone to get you know, it's too complicated to think about all the different cell phone plans that are available and your friend says well you know i have at&t and it works great so, you know, your decision has just been simplified for you. So you go and you get AT&T. Now, an economist would say, aha, 
listen, AT&T's market share just went up. That means that it's a superior product to the opposition. In fact, it may not be the case. It's just that that's what your friend told you to get, and maybe your friend didn't know anything either. Once you start to take account of all these interactions between people, it becomes much more difficult to say what processing is going on within the person and what processing is going on in the network. And so even though you start off with this population of discrete entities, the behavior that gets exhibited is very hard to pin down to these entities. In a sense, the barrier between internal and external disappears mm -hmm. to some extent. You know, individuals are unpredictable, right? I mean, this right. is sort of one of the, the objections that many people have to mathematical sociology is they say, well, how can you make simple models about people? Because people are very complicated and right. they, they have lots of uh, reasons for doing whatever it is that they do. And that's true. It's very hard to use these sorts of models to sort of influence a person. When you put lots and lots of people together, rather than increasing complexity, you often see decreasing complexity. So this is why it's possible to do science in, uh, in social systems, because you take lots and lots of very, very complicated, nuanced individuals, and uh, you put them together, and they, they behave in occasionally very regular predictable ways. And that's the kind of outcome that we are interested in understanding is collective behavior and collective dynamics, not necessarily individual level dynamics. So that's not something you can really use in a day-to-day -day basis in your own life. So since these networks are self-emerging from individual interactions, you actually don't get the uh, specific insights into how individuals behave then, right? You can, uh -huh. right, in the sense that the kind of insight that you might get is that our perceptions of why we do the things we do are often really quite inaccurate. Right? So we have this sort of belief that because we tend to perceive ourselves as atomized individuals, I mean, this is sort of very deeply buried in our, in our culture, that, that everybody's independent and everybody does the things that, you know, that they do because that's what they wanted to do. And we often tell ourselves these stories after the fact that, you know, I did this because I want to be an individual and I'm expressing myself and this is my preferences. Uh, I once read somewhere that in a crisis, for example, uh, in general what we observe is that 10% of the people take decisive action while 80% of them uh, follow these leaders. Can this be applied in a general way, perhaps? I'm not sure where that statistic comes from. It may, that may be the case, but I think that you would have a very tough time predicting ahead of time who those people would be. Uh -huh. And this is another kind of insight that we can get from studying these systems is that after the fact, if you look at the spread of an epidemic or the diffusion of an innovation or the success of a particular product, it will often turn out that certain people were key players in that process and they introduced it to a new market or they convinced a lot of important people that this was a good idea. And you can say a similar sort of thing in the in uh, you know crisis situations that that somebody comes out after the fact to to look like they were a, a you know a, a key player and you know we often call these people opinion leaders and uh, everybody's very interested in trying to figure out who they are. It's not so clear that before the fact you could figure out who they are. Uh, there's a, a lot of that who turns out to be influential is often a consequence of all the stuff that's going on around them 
as much as it is a consequence of their individual characteristics. Okay. And so once again, you get this sort of weird distinction between the, the internal and the external, and it becomes very hard to separate uh, somebody's behavior from the behavior of other people around them. And so, you know, just to go back to the crisis situation, you know, it, often the most unlikely people become critical, and it's not because secretly all along they were ready for this task. They just did what the situation demanded of them in many cases. You know, had they been in slightly different circumstances, they would have behaved in a different way. I, I think that it's very hard to it's very hard to see that in real life because in real life you just get this one set of events and that's what happened and after the fact it all seems clear. Right? Mm -hmm. So this person was important, therefore it must have been something about them that made them important. Uh, once you start to think about these processes in a more uh, in a mathematical sense and you start to understand the whole set of possible outcomes it becomes more and more clear that there may not have been anything that special about them at all. Last I want to ask you in your book you mentioned that casual acquaintances may have a bigger potential for having life-changing impacts rather than someone's best friend. Could you elaborate on this a little bit? That statement comes from a very sort of old idea in sociology well not that old it's a few decades old but um was proposed by a sociologist, Mark Granovetter, who was actually at Stanford University. It's called the strength of weak ties, and the idea is that a weak tie is a relationship that is weak. It's somebody who you don't necessarily know all that well, whereas a strong tie is someone who was a very close friend. And the idea is that people who are strong ties, your close friends, uh, also tend to be connected to each other, whereas your weak ties tend to be uh, people who are not so intimately embedded in the rest of your social network. Right. Uh, and the consequence of that is that your weak ties are more likely to know people and things that you don't already know. And so your strong ties know many of the people that you know, and so they can't really connect you to anyone that you don't know, whereas your weak ties are more likely to be able to do that. And so Mark Granovetter, when he proposed this idea, was interested in people finding jobs, and many of the people that he talked to, when he asked them, you know, how did you get this job, they mentioned that they had had a referral, and he said, oh, so a friend helped you get this job, and they would always correct him and say, well, it wasn't really a friend, it was more of an acquaintance. And so that's how he came to this idea that it was acquaintances who maybe they don't have as much invested in you, but it's probably more complicated than that. You know, the world is a, is a complicated place, but there does seem to be a, a great deal uh, in that idea, and, and that's why it's been around for so long. I guess we're running out of time here. Are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your book? One thing I could say about the book, which is that it's only partly about networks. It's only partly about this idea of six degrees of separation, and I, I think that's a fascinating idea. But I think that more fascinating is what the consequences are of this idea and of networks in general for the kinds of social processes that define our lives. And the sorts of things that I'm interested in these days are very much along those lines. How do epidemics of disease take off? How do uh, cultural fads start? And why do some things become popular while other things, other things fail? And what can we learn about the world by thinking about it in these sort of very uh, networked-like terms. Okay, Professor Watts, thanks for your time. Uh, thank you for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. My pleasure. And we were just talking to Professor Duncan Watts from Columbia University to talk about social network. His book, Six Degrees, is now available in bookstores and online. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out what a ribozyme is, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, and now here's Gordon with the answer to last week's question of the week. So last week's question of the week was, what is a ribozyme? A ribozyme is actually an RNA molecule that functions as an enzyme. So normally, enzymes are made out of protein, but these enzymes are made out of RNA. What's really amazing about these enzymes is that they give us a mechanism for how life could have originated, because here you have a molecule that can both act catalytically and can potentially self-replicate, giving us two of the major hurdles that have to be overcome for life to occur. Oh, that's very great and interesting there. Aye, that's no real like It's the craziest cosmo with this week's question of the week. Hey, so you know really interesting in what exactly is a battery? I need more power! But how does it work? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might have the power! And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Clocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.